Well, good morning. We are beginning a new series this morning as we begin the book of Ephesians. And we're going to look at this morning Ephesians chapter 1, the first six verses. So if you'll go ahead and turn there, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Now, just a little bit of background on this. The city of Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, which today is modern-day Turkey. And because Ephesus is not mentioned in, in every single early manuscript, it is believed by many that this letter to the Ephesians was intended to be circulated among all the churches in Asia Minor and was simply sent first to the believers in Ephesus. Now, Paul identifies himself here as the author, and there shouldn't be any reason to, to dispute that at all. There really shouldn't be any question about it. It is one of Paul's prison epistles. It was written while he was imprisoned in Rome, so this replaced the date of it between 60 and 62 A.D. Ephesus was known for the Temple of Artemis, or some call it the Temple of Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a very important center of politics, education, and commerce. So Ephesus was a major city. And the, a key theme in the book of Ephesians is the mystery of the church, uh, uh, in which, which is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs that the Gentiles are members of the same body of Christ and the Gentiles are partakers in the promise of Christ through the gospel. So that is really the major theme of Ephesians. And within this context, other topics are going to be seen, such as election, predestination, grace, faith, etc. There are several. Now the first three chapters of the book are going to be theological in nature. And the last three chapters are going to be focused on Christian behavior. So in short, what Paul is doing, he's starting by teaching doctrine, and then he finishes up by teaching us how to apply it to our lives. So this is what we're going to be looking at. If you would read with me, please, through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as, he choose, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasures of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for choosing us, for calling us, for adopting us, or for sacrificing yourself for us. 
for revealing yourself to us. The Father, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For that, we thank you. Lord, help us this morning as we go through this message. Just, just open our hearts and our ears to your word. Take everything else out of the way. Help us to regain our focus and to place it squarely on you. And I thank you ahead of time, Father. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, of course, Paul starts off by identifying himself and uh, describing himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, apostle simply means a messenger. And as a messenger of Jesus Christ, he is delivering Jesus Christ's own message. And this sets forth the authority that this letter carries as the Word of God. So this letter is addressed to saints. Now I want to point that out to you. In the second half of verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Jesus Christ. That means, we need, and we need to remember, that this is written to Christians. It is written to believers. It is not written to non-believers. So, as we read through this and as we study this letter to the Ephesians, we need to keep in mind at all times that he is writing to those who are believers in Christ. Now, he starts off with a very standard greeting that he gives quite often uh, of, of grace and peace. And it's a common greeting used by Paul. What we need to remember is that this greeting, as I said, goes out to Christians, and they are living in a world that is hostile to them. This world that they lived in at that time was not friendly to, to believers. And as such, Paul is wanting them to experience the grace of God's salvation. He is wanting them to experience the peace that passes all understanding, both of which come only from God and God alone. The blessings of God come only through Christ. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he is where blessings emanate from, where they come from. Now look at verse 4 for a moment. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Here we go. Although he doesn't identify it as such, here we have a look at the doctrine of election. Now, <laughs> there is so much that could be discussed about this. But sometimes, less is more. It is, it is one of my long-held philosophies not to overcomplicate things. So while there have been theological discussions on the topic of election and predestination that have filled countless volumes of books, I believe it's best just to keep it simple. 
It's really not as complicated as many make it out to be. Now, election is simply God's choosing. We're told point blank here that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So here's the thing. The election is God's choosing, okay? It's him making a choice. Salvation begins with God, not with man. And this is the core of the doctrine of election. Salvation begins with God. It is his, it is his work, it is his choosing. Now Luke chapter 19 verse 10 tells us, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man, Jesus Christ, has come to seek out those who are lost. He's the one doing the seeking. Secondly, John 15, 16 says, John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Jesus says, you did not choose me. I chose you. So let's, let's move on. And all this is going to begin, I think, I hope, to make perfect sense. So this leads us in the most obvious direction, and that is the direction of predestination. Now, verse 5 says, Having predestined us to Christ uh, by... Uh, as." having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So here we go. Here we meet this very often misunderstood word of predestination. <laughs> Again, it has been the subject of countless, countless theological debates and discussions and, and almost synonymously with the uh, election, has been enough said on this to, again, fill countless volumes of books, way more than we even need to think about discussing. It's an issue that can become very confusing and complicated to many, but again, I say let's keep it simple as all this begins to work together. There really is no reason to make things overly complicated. First thing I want to point out, very specifically, nowhere, nowhere in the Bible are we taught, nowhere does it say that people are predestined to hell. Okay, you'll find that nowhere in Scripture whatsoever. The reason is, is because this word predestination refers to God's people. It refers to the saved. Remember this book is being written to those who are believers. It's not being written to non-believers. So the word predestination refers to those who are already saved. The word simply means to ordain or to predetermine, and it refers to what God does for those who are saved. Again, look at verse 5 here. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ 
to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So what has God predestined for the saved? He has predestined us to adoption, to be brought into his family. It is one of the things that God has predestined for us. The saved are also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So as saved people, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Moreover, Romans 8, 29 and 30, continuing on, Moreover, whom he predestined, these also he called, whom he called, these also he justified, and whom he justified, these also he glorified. So that this is, begins a progression of what he is doing and has predestined to do to those who are saved. And lastly, the saved are predestined to obtain an inheritance. Ephesians chapter 1 Jumping up to verse 11 very quickly, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So the saved are predestined to adoption. They are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, and they are predestined to obtain an inheritance. Now, I'm not going to spend more time today on this doctrine of election and predestination. I think this is a, a pretty simple and straightforward explanation to kind of, kind of move us forward. Because what I, want, I, I, what I want the takeaway to be today is not some theological discussion on Calvinism versus Arminianism, not, you know, predestination, what it means, what it doesn't mean precisely, and how we break it on down into the finest details. That's not what I want to take away today to be. What I want you to understand is that salvation is about God and not about us. Let, let's move on to verse 6. Well, I'm going to begin by reading verse 5 again and take us straight into 6 having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. To the praise and the glory of his grace, and he made us accepted in the beloved. It's to His glory. It's to His praise. He made us accepted. So all of this, our salvation, is to the praise and the glory of God. Not for us, but to God's glory. Scripture, God's work, the gospel, none of it, I want you to remember this, none of it is about us. That's not a single word in Scripture that's about me. It's all about God and His glory. Now, 
This is really going to challenge the philosophy of the modern American church as a whole. When we began to think that nothing, nothing here is about us. It's all about God and all to his glory. That changes things. And this, this is when we begin to understand that. This is when we truly begin to learn humility. And this is when we can truly begin to find our true standing with God. This is when we can stop focusing on ourselves. Because here's what Scripture says about that. Romans 12, 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now first, God has dealt out the faith. It's not something that we've created. God has dealt out the faith. God has chosen us, and it's all to God's glory. And we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Even when I'm spilling water down in front of me. But that's okay. God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. It comes from God. It emanates from God. Philippians 2.3 tells us this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Again, we're not to put ourselves first, but others ahead of us. And this is where it begins to challenge the modern American church philosophy. Because the modern day American church has a vision problem. And what I mean by that is that we, we have this vision problem and that we often can't see past ourselves and our own desires. The church has been organized around some very nice-sounding and well-intentioned ministries that in reality often are focused on satisfying our own desires and not the will of God. It's what we want to see. It's what we want to do. It, it, how we want to benefit ourselves without truly focusing on the will of God. And this is how so much of the modern American church has been organized. And it is absolutely beyond time the Christians stop focusing on what God can do for them. Or what the church can do for them. We need to stop asking those questions. God, what can you do to me? God, how can you bless me? Or, or what can the church do for me? That is absolutely, completely, 100% the wrong focus. Now, what kind of programs does the church have for me or my kids? It's the wrong focus. How can God bless me? It's the wrong focus. These are examples of a self-centered focus not a Christ-centered focus. Instead, it should be, 
How can I serve the Lord? How can I please and glorify Him? Because everything about being a Christian is about the Lord. It's about Jesus Christ and how we can serve and please Him. Again, there's not a single thing in here about me or any other individual. It's all about glorifying God. Unfortunately, Charles Spurgeon, so long ago, was correct, and it's only gotten worse. He said, the church has so little influence over the world because the world has so much influence over the church. Because the world centers around this this self-centered worldview. Thinking about myself, what's best for me? How can I benefit? And it's spilled over into the church. And sadly, the modern church has largely become a service provider and a social club for its members. Rather than a lighthouse of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The focus has become entertainment, self-fulfillment, political activism. And my goodness, just look at the Southern Baptist Convention today. Bill and I were talking about some of this before church. The resources they spend and the amount of time they spend arguing and debating about uh, political activism while they, while they could be diverting resources uh, to, to sharing the gospel and getting it around the world. Now, they do that, but so many more resources and energy that could be spent toward that purpose that is spent on useless things. This is spilled over into a lot of the local churches. We like to fulfill our own desires and say that God has blessed us. Think about that for a moment because it happens a lot. And start, pay, you know, start paying attention. You'll notice it. You know, we use the church to fulfill our own desires and say that God has blessed us. But are we really doing God's will? Are we really working to serve Him? And his purpose? Or are we worried about what the church can do and provide for us? If so, we've got our eyes on the wrong thing. And it's time to start being Christ focused and not self focused. Christ centered, not self centered. You know, so often we'd rather petition the government to pass more laws rather than glorify God by, by sharing the gospel and adding to His kingdom and actually changing people's hearts and doing something productive. Look, now this, is a, this is a big thing today, but laws cannot change hearts and save souls. It's impossible. It cannot happen. And if it were possible, Jesus never would have had to sacrifice Himself on that cross. If laws could change hearts and save souls. But they cannot. So Jesus had to die. 
Laws can only attempt to modify someone's behavior. Only God can change hearts. And without a change of heart, your behavior means nothing. It's simply window dressing on the outside. But the heart still dirty and corrupt without the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. Our primary focus should be to share this life-changing gospel. When lives change, everything else is going to begin to fall in place. When hearts are transformed by the Holy Spirit, then people change. Not because they're being forced to, because they want to. And when people change, the world changes. But it needs to begin with a cleansing of the hearts. I think sometimes we get things backwards in the church. <laughs> sometimes we act as if we want the non-believer to change their behavior first and then come to Christ. But that's a backward approach. That's not the way it works. The non-believer has no reason to change. They need a reason to change, and that reason is Jesus Christ and the conviction of the Holy Spirit as He works in their hearts. We, we need to stop working from the back in first and, and, and put things in the proper order. First Christ. Then change can come. We don't need to clean people up. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. He'll, he'll do that. First Christ. Then we'll begin to see change. Then there'll be conviction. We need to stop taking this backwards approach. You know, it, it, it's the, the biblical mission of the church is to share the gospel. Not all that other stuff that simply becomes a distraction for us and distracts us from the work that we should be doing. Everything needs to be put into its proper perspective. Um, that there is a time and a place, there are certain just causes when it comes to political activism, for example. But we need to vet those very carefully and decide where we're going to focus our energy. We are people, we are human beings. We have a finite amount of energy. We have a finite amount of resources. That's simply the truth of the matter. So, we need to decide what's really important and what's not. And top of the list is the sharing of the gospel with the purpose of the changing of hearts. And I think we'll have much more success if we stop trying to change people first and then share the gospel. We go to them as they are. Share the gospel. Allow Christ to change him.
when it truly becomes all about God and not about ourselves, then we're going to begin to see the futility of all these other endeavors and the urgency of the gospel. The church needs to remain pure, fully committed to the singular mission of bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. You want to fill the pews of the church? Give people a reason to come to church. Why would the unsaved... I mean, you know, it happens from time to time, but, but why would, in general, the unsaved want to come to church? Why? What possible reason would there be for them to be here? There's really not one. But share the gospel. Lead people to Christ. Then, then there's a reason. Then there's a draw. Something to bring them in. Then there's that desire to commune, that changed heart, that changed life. The desire to learn, the desire to commune with God's people and fellowship. Then there's a reason to be here. That makes sense to you? God's Salvation is a very simple truth, and it's a testament to the greatness of God. Uh, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Look, this is a recap here as we begin to close out. God has chosen us. We saw this in John 15, 16. God has pursued us. We see this in Luke 19, verse 10. God has done all of the work. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Let me just turn there real quick. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God has done all the work. So he has chosen us, he has pursued us, he has done all the work, and according to Ephesians 1, 6, he gets all the glory. So you know what? My salvation is all about God. Your salvation is all about God. He's done everything. We've done nothing toward it. He has done it all. It's all about God and He gets the glory. And when this truly hits home, it becomes a game changer and a life changer. You know, it, it's a truth that I have known for uh, quite some time. But as I began to study for this first message here in, in Ephesians it really hit home to me. I've got no part in this. God did it all. That's an amazing thing. So everything that we do needs to be to His glory. To glorify and praise Him. And if that's not what we're doing, then we need to re-examine and reprioritize. And remember this one phrase, it's all about God. Not about me. It's about God. So what we look for in a church, for example, needs to be focused on the, the, the philosophy that's all about God and not about me. And this, this is what I leave us with as we go into the invitation. Let me, let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for all that you did. We, we thank you 
for being the author of our salvation, Lord. We thank you for choosing us, for pursuing us in the way that you have, to seek us out. We thank you for doing all the work, and we give you, Lord, all the glory today. And may the church begin to reflect that. And I pray for all of our churches nationwide, Lord, that, that we'll begin to reflect that philosophy, that there will be a conviction, and that you will be placed first, that you'll be the center of the focus in all things. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.